It's a pleasure to be able, a joy to be able to open the Word of God as a church family. And once again today in our verse-by-verse explore of Ecclesiastes, I invite you to head there with me. This book that is often confusing, sometimes encouraging, but never dull. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes together in the Old Testament, about the middle of your Bible. If you open up and you get in the middle of your Bible, you find Psalms or Proverbs, just head to the right a little bit, you'll find Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 3 this morning, if you're visiting us maybe for the first time. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, we keep some in the back, we'd be glad to share a copy of the Word with you. And there's a little note page, if you don't know the drill, in your bulletin, a little note page that I think will be of help along the way. Almost every month, the Reader's Digest carries a little section in its magazine called That's Outrageous. It's a feature that exposes some of the absurd and ridiculous things that go on in our country, and oftentimes the focus is on our legal system in this little feature. And just reading through a single issue, which generally carries four or five stories, it can leave you mad frustrated, and maybe even outraged. For example, there is a guy who has collected $500 in a, a month in disability benefits for the past five years. All of that time he has been in prison for killing four people. The jury decided that the man was insane. Law prohibits convicted felons from collecting disability in prison, but a person found guilty by reason of insanity is eligible for benefits. This murderer, at your expense, has more disposable income after five years in prison than he ever had in his life. And we say, that's outrageous. A man filed suit against a county here in California for $2,794, even as he was serving an 18-year prison sentence. He sued the county for his personal belongings that, had, that he had left in the stolen car he was in when he was arrested. He had robbed a couple of their valuables, stole their car. He was caught a week later, having stripped the car of everything belonging to the couple. When law enforcement returned the car to the couple, they gave the criminal's personal effects to charity. The county may have to pay the inmate for his losses with your money. Right? And we say, that's outrageous. Church family, did you know that in 2013, the average time that a convicted felon served in prison was 22 months, less than two years? Criminals who commit violent crimes against other persons do less than four years for those crimes. And the average time served by a convicted murderer in our country is less than 13 years. The real criminals, it has been observed, are lawyers and the courts. And something called plea bargaining. You ever heard of plea bargaining? Yeah. Lawyers direct the accused to plead guilty to a lesser charge. The plea bargain, it is argued, saves the court time and the taxpayers money. There is no trial. The criminal does not get charged for his real crimes, his most serious crimes. It's called a plea bargain. One has to wonder if that's a bargain for us, right? In fact, we say, that's outrageous. You know, these kinds of stories and facts can, can make us angry. 
can't they? They they make us wary of our fellow man. They make us wary of the legal system. In fact, it doesn't take much of this kind of information to push us towards what we might call a cynical spirit, a pessimistic, critical, skeptical, sour, negative take on life and our culture. A cynical spirit can come from spending too much time with outrageous stories. But I will tell you, such stories are not new, nor are the feelings that rise up within a person when they witness injustice, unfairness, oppression, cruelty without consequence. Those feelings are not new. They've been present in every age which is why I share these outrageous accounts with you this morning. Perhaps they will help us quickly get back into the skin, the feelings, the emotions of an ancient Bible character that we're getting to know quite well by now in our study of Ecclesiastes. Maybe these stories will help us get back into Solomon's skin today. If you've not been with us until now, we are studying the diary of of a man who is on a desperate search to find out what it takes to have a meaningful, purpose-filled, significantly satisfying life that matters and makes a difference. Ecclesiastes is the diary that Solomon kept as he searched for a life that makes sense, that makes the book of Ecclesiastes important to us because we want to know how to have a life that is meaningful and makes sense. But what makes Solomon's diary unique among Bible books is that Solomon gives us, by and large, the search for life's meaning from the perspective of one who leaves God out of his or her life. In fact, if you have been with us from the outset, you have surely become familiar by now with Solomon's favorite expression as he looks at life. For he looks at it largely from a certain point of view, a a specific perspective that we have come to identify as an under the sun perspective. In other words, a look at life without God in it, a a purely horizontal look at life. That is Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, looking for the meaning of life under the sun, not really going above the sun to God, but looking at life on this horizontal plane. How many, how many times have we come upon this phrase thus far? We're, we're halfway through chapter 3. I've counted no less than 10 times that Solomon has used that expression under the sun just up to this point. It will appear nearly 30 times before we're done. And so church family, I don't want to wear us out with this reminder, but this phrase under the sun is the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. The book only makes sense if we remember as we're studying it that we are reading the observations of one who largely leaves God out of the picture. Every now and then Solomon's going to poke his head above the sun and give us a look at life from a Godward point of view. But then just as quickly he'll dive back down and go on another search under the sun. The end result, as Solomon has already shared repeatedly, is that life under the sun is barren. It's futile. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind, right? All of these are expressions that we have heard. Without without God in your life, life is just grim, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's grim. And a grim view of life under the sun makes for a grim individual. A pessimistic, joyless, hopeless, cynical person. In fact, as we continue our journey with Solomon in search of a meaningful life, listen carefully and see if you don't hear the cynical reflections of a man frustrated with his life under the sun. Beginning at verse 16 of chapter 3. Your Bible is open there. Let me read for us. Beginning at verse 16. Solomon says, Moreover, I saw, where? Under the sun, that in the place of justice, the legal system, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is what? Vanity, meaningless, is one of his favorite words. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts go down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better, nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Are you catching the cynical Cynical spirit with which he's writing. Verse 1, chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Cynical? A little bit. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. We'll stop right there. (laughs) Our friend Solomon's in a dark spot, isn't he? He really is. Brothers and sisters, these are not the words of a sad man, but of a terribly frustrated, angry, cynical man. A man who is fast doubting that there is much, if anything, that is good or commendable under the sun. Right? Yeah. In verse 16, he takes a a, a look at the legal system. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. We can say without much hesitation, Solomon, you're absolutely right. You are right. You nailed it. As it was in your day, so it is in our day. We can relate to your frustration, your your observations. In fact, you know, we're not long in this world before we learn that not everybody plays by the rules. Our enlightenment starts in the nursery, and it progresses from there, doesn't it? One of my earliest childhood memories, I could have been no more than two and a half or three years old, 
It comes from being at the babysitters where I spent my days as my mom and dad as teenagers were working. There was another little boy there. And uh, to put it bluntly, he was a bully. And he loved to throw dirt. I remember this. He loved to throw dirt at me. And he loved to throw dirt in my mouth. How do you like that? My earliest memories of childhood are getting a mouth full of dirt on several occasions. <laughs> I learned right then and there that life isn't fair. We graduate from nursery school, and when we go to grade school, we find that some people don't like to wait in line. They just butt in front of you, right? Forget the rules, forget you. When we start to drive as teenagers, we realize that not everyone waits their turn at the four-way stop. Life's not fair, right? Not everybody's nice. Of course, Solomon is thinking about far more serious things. He looks at the judicial system where, of all places, there should be justice and fairness and the upholding of what is right, and he sees corruption. Where we should be able to count on justice, there is injustice, he says. Those outrageous stories from earlier just, are just a, a case in point and a tiny little part of the big picture. But Solomon has other stories of his own. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort the oppressed. At the very least, the oppressed should have a comforter, Solomon reasons. Even more, they should have a deliverer to release them from the oppressor. But they have no one. It's not right. You flip over to chapter 5 in your Bible. And we're going to look at a verse that we are going to look at a little bit later on. Not, uh, in the future. Chapter 5, verse 8. Solomon expands on all of this even further when he writes these words. If you see in a province the, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there was yet higher ones over them. In other words, the corrupt official in the court system, is protected by someone higher up, and the two of them are protected by some corrupt person above them. Do you think Solomon's suffering from cynicism? Yeah, I think so. And, and this is a scene that's replayed millions of times. The longer you plead your case to an official, the more clear it becomes that they are well hidden behind bureaucratic red tape. And their back door is covered by an official who's higher up. Solomon says, under the sun, the little guy, the, the undefended, the powerless are getting worked. Everything is corrupt and crooked, and that's just the way it is, under the sun. If you turn another page or two, you find chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, verse 14. We hear yet another twist on the same theme as Solomon says there. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth, that is under the sun. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is what? Meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. 
To say it another way, it's not fair. It makes Solomon angry, and his anger, not surprisingly, after enough exposure to to the injustices, it turns to cynicism, which we see clearly in chapter 4, verse 2. If you go back there, upon reflecting on the dead, Solomon cynically says, and I thought that... And I thought that the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Is that not a cynical response to this unfair life? How fortunate to now be dead so as not to have to face the injustice. But he's not done. Look what he says in verse 3. To the unborn he speaks. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evils, the evil deeds that are done under the sun. You guys have it the best. You haven't been born yet, so you haven't seen all this corruption and all of this evil. You're the most fortunate of all. Church family, this is a frustrated, disillusioned, earthbound, under the sun cynic in all of his glory. Are you familiar with the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? You know that name? Yeah, many of you do. One of America's most revered poets. He put together a poem on one occasion that describes the feelings that come when you're exposed to these kinds of injustices enough times. Strangely, his words have found their way into one of our favorite Christmas carols. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Do you remember these words? The poet listened to the ringing of the Yuletide bells. He remembered the words of the the angel who announced peace on earth and goodwill to men, but wrestling with the reality of the world he was living in under the sun. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote these. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is wrong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What is that? That's cynicism, isn't it? That's cynicism and anger. And then just to finish this out, notice that Solomon's cynicism spills over into one more statement as from under the sun, he makes an all-inclusive assertion about the motives of people in verse 4 of chapter 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work comes from a man's what? Envy of his neighbor. What is he accusing everybody of being? Envious. Self-serving motives. People don't care about each other. Not really, Solomon says. They just care about themselves. They're they're out for themselves. They're motivated by, by envy. And so suspicious, angry, cynical. Solomon has looked at enough of life, scrutinizing experiences of people in his culture, and he comes to these conclusions. The wicked prosper, the oppressed would be better off dead, and everyone else is energized by greed. Oh, man. I don't need to tell you, fellow Christian, that no one looking for a meaningful, satisfying life is going to find that if they hang out where Solomon is hanging out, right? You're not going to find a meaningful, satisfying life. Such a perspective on life brings with it no joy. A cynical spirit is a miserable, joyless spirit, and being 
around a cynical person is a miserable experience as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You and I may know some cynical folks who are submerged in the swamp of life right now and all they can see is what is bad and all they can tell you is what is wrong and all they can point out is is the inequities and the unfairnesses of life and they shower you with that. It doesn't take you long to say, excuse me, I have an appointment. See you later. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, as, as lovers of the Lord Jesus today, as devoted followers of him, as, as Christians, as, as people who bear that name Christian, there is no way that that word cynic should ever be identified with you, a man or woman or young person running hard after Jesus. The term Christian and the term cynic should never be used together because they are opposite terms. Aren't they? Aren't they? I think they are. God has not called us to cynicism. He has called us to joy, has he not? God has not called us to cynicism. He's called us to thankfulness, has he not? God hasn't called us to cynicism. He's called us to hope, has he not? Philippians 4.4. Let's read it aloud together right off the screen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul's writing to Christians. He says, joy, that's to be your thing. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And do what, church? Give thanks in most circumstances. Oh, oh, wait a minute. All circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Joy-filled, thankful. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, there is a better way than Solomon's way, yes? There's a way to defend and protect ourselves against Solomon's critical, pessimistic joyless, depressed, hopeless, cynical perspective. There is a way to do that. And interestingly enough, it is Solomon who helps us to lay hold of that. Believe it or not, he's going to do that. He, he He doesn't take things far enough and he doesn't stay there long enough, but he at least gets us pointed in the right direction. After bemoaning the injustice of the judicial system... And the wickedness that prevails under the sun in that place in verse 16 of chapter 3. Here's what he says in verse 17. I said in my heart, what? What's the next three words? God will judge. He will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. In other words, in one of those rare moments in his diary, Solomon, while slogging it out under the sun, looks up above the sun and he says, wrong will not be permitted by God to go on forever. He says that. It has its season. It has its time. Wickedness and corruption and oppression. They're going to be judged by the sovereign hand of a good and just God one day. The reign of injustice with all of its grievous outrage is temporary. 
We're not expecting cynical Solomon to say this, though, are we? We're not expecting verse 17 at all. And yet, boom, there it is. He pokes his head above the sun. In fact, let's take a closer look at a New Testament affirmation of what he says here in verse 17 by going to another verse 17, only this one will be in Romans chapter 12. If you'll take your Bible and and run there, keep your finger tucked here in Ecclesiastes, when you get to Romans 12, locate verse 17. And here is what we read. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to a a, a church family just like ours, people who love Jesus and, and want to live him out in their lives. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so doing, you will heap burning coals of conviction, perhaps repentance, on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you know these words? You've read them before? Yeah? Brothers and sisters, what the Holy Spirit is telling us here is that we are vulnerable to cynicism and anger and a negative spirit and outlook on life and people and even maybe a, a, a hunger to re- have revenge for injustices we've, we, we suffer. We're vulnerable to that unless we invite God to be God in our lives and trust him to represent us and avenge us if need be. And we, for our part, seek to reflect the love of Jesus even towards our enemy. What is our defense against cynicism? It's let God be God in our lives, right? Let him be the judge. Any other approach, fellow Christians, is going to lead straight to cynicism, to bitterness, to anger, and really to a crippled walk with Jesus. Now, if we go back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon is on the right track in verse 17. He's, he's heading in the right direction. His, his head pops above the, the sun there. He should have settled into this truth in verse 17, this truth about God, but he doesn't do that. Here Solomon is like many who know the truth but choose not to live in it. It's sad because he's so close to finding reprieve from his feelings of meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But because Solomon is in this under-the-sun place, though he can declare with his words that God will judge, that God will vindicate, that God will make right, he immediately jumps from there to ponder why there is a delay in God's judging of injustice. Why isn't right now, God, the proper time to bring universal justice and end all of these injustices that make us cynical? Why isn't now the right time? If you flip your note page over, the question spinning around in his head, he answers in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is what? He's testing them that they may see that they themselves are what? Beasts. 
When Solomon says God is testing them, the Hebrew word for testing here is a word that means to expose or to reveal or to make known. In other words, Solomon says, God delays his righteous judgment against sin and injustice so that mankind can see how beastly, how sinfully cruel and brutal he really is. He thinks he's above the animals, that he's civilized, that he's under control, when in fact he has has a sin-infected, beast-like nature that results in beast-like behavior towards other people. God delays his judgment so that we can see what we really are. That's what Solomon says here. Sinful, beastly. His delay allows us to look at ourselves and see how low Sin has taken us as a people, as a culture. Animals act in what appears to be brutal ways towards each other. But in their case, it's simply instinct and it's survival. But mankind can't hide behind that excuse. We're moral beings with a God-created sense of right and wrong and good and bad and, and wicked and righteous. Yet, we are attracted, despite what we know, being moral creatures, we are attracted like a magnet to sin, to wrong, to injustice, to cruelty. He delights in oppression, imposing suffering on others. He shows by his actions that he's actually below the animals in terms of depravity and sin. Though we may not all express it, the seed of a beastly sin nature resides in the heart of every one of us. Would you agree? We all have that, every one of us. And Solomon sees this. If we had any doubt about that, we need only look at Nazi Germany in the 1940s or Iraq in the 1990s or Afghanistan in the last decade or ISIS in our own time to know that we have a beastly nature. Mankind acts like an animal towards his neighbor. That's what Solomon says here in verse 18. And God lets him see that. God delays judgment so that we can see for ourselves what beasts we really are. For until we see what we really are, we won't admit that we need help. That we need help from outside of ourselves, from above the sun. Someone to redeem our beastly nature. There's a purpose for God's delay. And then with his thoughts racing, Solomon runs out another thought. He, he, he slides into a focus on inevitable death. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. For all, his vanity. all go to one place. All are from du- the dust, and to dust all return. He's back under the sun in a big way at this moment. Of all the things that crush us, the worst is the inevitability of death. Solomon says that in this way, we're no different than the animals. They live, and then they return to the dirt. We live, we return to the dirt, dust to dust, under the sun. So let me ask you, church family, why do we die? Why do we die? You know, when somebody dies, we ask, what was the cause, right? What was the cause? 
We point to cancer. We point to car accidents. We, maybe it's a heart attack. But the Bible says there's a, a much deeper reason for death. We die because we are sinners. Yes. Romans 6.23 says it as plainly as it can possibly be stated. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin is kind of a churchy word, but its meaning is rather simple. Sin simply means rebellion against God, doesn't it? Sin means us wanting to do our own thing the way that we want to do it, when we want to do it. No God interfering or saying that's not good for you. No accountability to God. Independence from our creator. I do my own thing. I'm my own God. Sin. Sin is why to dust we return. Two people every second somewhere in the world die. 120 every minute, 172,000 every day, 1.2 million people every week around the world die. Solomon looks at people dying and looks at animals and birds and everything else dying and he concludes that we're all the same because we all end up the same. We all end up dust. Church family, I need to tell you that Solomon is wrong here. He's wrong. But it's where he is, entangled as he is in his earthbound, under-the-sun thoughts. This is what he believes in the moment. Sadly, do you know where all of cynical Solomon's under-the-sun reflections lead him? Do you know the conclusion that he comes to? Look at verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. What a crummy conclusion, right? I mean, really? Look for a meaningful, satisfying, joy-filled, hope-infused, purpose-driven life solely from the work that you do? You've got to be kidding me. But under the sun, and cynically impacted, it's where you go. The Bible says that when we go above the sun, we're going to make two life-changing discoveries, eternity-changing discoveries. They not only challenge us, but they completely undo Solomon's conclusion. When we go above the sun, we're going to see the cross of Jesus. We're going to see the cross of Jesus and we're going to see the resurrection of Jesus. Let's talk about that for a moment. The cross. The cross. That's where we discover an injustice that saves us. Agreed? Yeah. Solomon lamented the injustice in his world. Where righteousness should be, there was wickedness. What Solomon didn't know is that God would use the injustice of, his wor- of, of this world to bring justice and life to you and me through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to do what? To be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that fair? No. That's unjust, totally unjust. 
Peter says it like this, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to do what? To bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus is holy, sinless, eternally perfect God in flesh. And yet God the Father permitted him to be sentenced to, to die by the legal system of his day on a cross as a lawbreaker, as a criminal. Was that fair? Was that just? Was that right? No, of course it wasn't. God the Father asked his own son to bear the consequences, not of his sin, but of ours, yours and mine. You want to talk about injustice? (laughs) The cross is the pinnacle example of injustice. We occasionally see injustice when an innocent person is wrongly sentenced to prison. Later DNA tests reveal that someone else did the crime. We see that as Justice miscarried, and it really is. But but what if someone willingly took the prison time for a crime they didn't do? What if someone willingly went to the electric chair for a crime that they did not commit? What if they died in the criminal's place because they loved the criminal and they wanted a different future for that criminal, and they willingly died? What if that happened? Well, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? That's the cross of Jesus. Jesus willingly died for our sin, for our guilt, not his. Our crimes against God, not his. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He paid the penalty of our sin so that the justice of God would be preserved. And Jesus did. He did our time. He did our crime. He did that so that we, now forgiven and free from the eternal sentence of separation from God because of sin, could have heaven and life eternal. The cross is indeed the greatest of all injustices, but it saves, doesn't it? It saves us. And what about death? Scripture calls it our last enemy. I mean, it's fantastic to be forgiven of our sin, but dust still awaits us, right? Does it? Does it await you if you're in Jesus today? No, it does not. Solomon, under the sun, got it wrong. You know, the four Gospels tell us that eyewitness accounts saw Jesus die on the cross, that he was buried in a tomb for three days, but the the grave couldn't hold him, and he rose from the dead, victorious over death. His resurrection was physical, we're told. He ate. He had scars from his crucifixion. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time after his death and resurrection. Many who saw him alive died as martyrs, declaring that what they had seen was true. You don't die for something you know is not true. Jesus was not dust. He was alive. Well, what does that mean to you and me? What does that mean to you and me that Jesus is alive? It means that because he's alive, we live in him, right? We're not dust to dust. We are dust to glory, to eternal life. Yes, 
1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives these words to the church. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, what, church? Imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Victory, not dust. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now this may sound wild and weird to somebody in this room, but it's the truth. We declare Jesus' resurrection as the proof that he conquered death for us, yet we still die. So how is this helpful? Dust to dust is what happens to us. But listen to this. The resurrection of Jesus means that God is not done with our dust. Amen. He's not done with your dust. Not in Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he forever conquered death's power over us. Death and dust can never be the end of the story for the one who is in Jesus by faith. How cool is that? That's life. It was Jesus who put it this way. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he what? Live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die eternally and spiritually and physically. Do you believe this? (laughs) Church. Yes, we believe this. The resurrection of Jesus comes with a promise. God will raise from the dead everyone who believes in his son. His resurrection is a preview of what is to come for all who have put their faith in him. Not dust to dust, but dust to eternal life. Amen? That's us. That's our story. Jesus' resurrection is life. For us. Believe in him, you destroy death. If Solomon could have heard Jesus' words in Ecclesiastes, how very different his little diary might read. Yeah? But we have heard, and we have believed, and that makes all the difference in your life and mine, not dust to dust, but dust to eternal life through the cross of Jesus. And we have a chance to celebrate that together, church. To, to leave here today remembering Jesus' cross and celebrating his life, his resurrection. So this table that we're about to step into in this moment is for everybody who has given their life to Jesus in simple saving faith. Acknowledged your sin, said I need a Savior. Jesus is my Savior. This table belongs to you. So we're going to invite the team to come up at this time. Get the worship team up here and let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, as we step into this moment, it's a sacred moment. It's a sacred moment.
All the injustice that you suffered, Lord Jesus, had a glorious purpose and, and design. That you would save us from our beastly sin nature. That you would redeem us back to yourself. That you would, that you would forgive us of our sin, make us clean, wash us white as snow. not fair, not fair for you, but gloriously true for us. We just want to tell you now, Lord Jesus, we love you and we want to, we want to celebrate and remember your death for us. So in these moments, be glorified. All God's people said, Amen.